what what a happy happy day it is! Um, wow, it's uh, this is uh, this is Easter, and I know I've mentioned it several times. And for the preacher, this is actually the hardest sermon ever. Um, about midweek, I came to this epiphany that everybody knows what I'm going to talk about. Right, the surprise factor is gone. There is no there is no surprise going on here today. Jesus is alive, and we know that. Um, I hope I can provide a, a few fresh perspectives and insights for you. But um, here at Mosaic Church, we, we actually just preach through the Bible. And we've been preaching through the Gospel of Mark. And conveniently, we're going to conclude this, this series in the Gospel of Mark at the end of Mark, which is when Jesus is alive. So if you have a Bible with you, you can open it with me to Mark chapter 16. It's a New Testament, one of the Gospels. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, that's okay. We've got the, the, the verses on the screen here for you today. Uh, but I'd also like to make known that we've got some Bibles available for you. Uh, if you don't have a Bible and you'd like to take one, those are on the, the table just outside of the, 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 the meeting room here. Uh, you can grab one of those. It's from the version that, that I read and preach from. And so you can bring it back next week and, and you will have a Bible. So we're in Mark chapter 16, and I mentioned that we've been working our way through Mark's gospel, and, and we'll conclude it today, and, and next week we'll actually begin a brand new series. Uh, it's, I'm really excited about it. We are going to go to the Old Testament. Uh, I'm kind of a, a new and an old uh, guy kind of preacher, so we're going to go to the Old Testament in the book of Daniel. And so the book, yeah, I got a couple woes. That's right. Whoa, the book of Daniel. It's one of those books that you read sometimes in the Bible if you've read it and you're like, I have no idea what to do with that. So that's what I'll be dealing with for the next 12 weeks as I prepare to preach it. Um, but I'm really excited about the, the next series. So I'd encourage you to come back as we dive into the, uh, to, uh, the book of Daniel. But this morning, our passage comes to us from Mark chapter 16. I'm going to read uh, verses 1 down through 15. And so uh, this is our uh, word from the Lord for us today. Mark chapter 16. Let's follow along. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Don't be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. Now when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared to Mary Magdalene from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country. And they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table, and he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. This is the inspired, inerrant, and infallible word of the living God. Let's ask him to bless our time together in it. Father, I, 
I ask now that you, would, that you would come and that you would surprise us with new things from your word, Lord. Though this is a very familiar account to many of us, Lord, I pray that we would see it with fresh eyes and fresh ears and that you would so move in our hearts that we might be more and more in love with our Savior today. Lord, it is our greatest desire to know the fullness of your love for sinners. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to see that from this text today. We ask these things in in Jesus' name. Amen. I read an article this week. It was in The Atlantic. Uh, I think it's, I don't know if it's a printed um, publisher, but it, it was online. And so I read this online article this week. It was entitled, Almost Everyone Who Is Unhappy With Life Is Unhappy For The Same Reasons. And I read it. I usually don't read all articles unless they catch my attention within the first paragraph or two. And, and this one caught me at the very first line. The very first line said this, that your expectations shape your reality. Your expectations shape your reality. And the article went on. It was actually a terrible article. I, I, actually, I actually regretted reading the entire thing. But it was kind of a lot of psychobabble, positive thinking type of stuff, right? If you, if you just tell yourself you'll be successful, then you'll be successful. And it was just kind of this kind of one of those pieces that had that feel to it. But, but the first line, it, it shaped, it was really what I was looking for to kind of open up our sermon today is, is that your expectations shape your reality. In other words, what you believe about the future shapes your now, right? And so when we, when we talk about um, the resurrection and we talk about Easter, I think oftentimes as Christians particularly, we just think about the future hope. Right? We think about the eternal life that's ours in Christ and how our sins have been declared forgiven and how we can have life eternal. And, and those are all wonderful and very true things and worthy of our time. But today I actually want to focus on how that future hope shapes your now. Because my suspicion is that you have a deep longing for future hope and you don't have any of it right now. And so when I, like any good preacher, begin a a kind of a word study, I I go to the dictionary, and I I wanted to kind of dive into hope. And what what does the world say hope is, and and how do we generally think about hope? And and here's what Webster's Dictionary, again, I don't think anybody prints these anymore. If they're selling dictionaries, I don't know who's buying them. But online, the Webster's Dictionary gives us this definition of hope. It says, it is to want something to happen or to be true and to think it could actually happen. Okay, did you hear that? It's this, this want to have something happen or be true and have it happen in your life. And I think that's actually a radically unbiblical definition. I think by and large, that's how we think about hope, that it's kind of wishful thinking, right? Like I, I really kind of want that to be true and maybe it'll work itself out. But the reality is the biblical account of the resurrection gives us a deep-rooted and deep-seated conviction that hope is something real that we can have right now. And so here's, um, here's why Easter is so significant and why it's so important is because the hope that we all want, the hope that we all long for is rooted in this historical event that happened that we call Easter. So here's my main point I want to communicate to you today, that if you're interested in hope, if if hope is something you want, the empty tomb is something you absolutely must have, okay? You cannot have hope without the event of Easter. So here's how I want to look at today's passage. Um, I want to look at three things. I want us to look at how hope is surprisingly surprising. Secondly, I want to look at how, how hope is unbelievably believable, 
And then third, I want to look at how hope is victoriously viral. Those are a, a mouthful preacher jargon there with all the letters, but let's, let's roll with it. Let's look at uh, the first point I want to make is how hope is surprisingly surprising. There was a video that came out, I think it was like in 2007, so you've probably seen this. It might be old news, but let me refresh your memory. Uh, there was a famous violinist, his name's Josh Bell, who has a, uh, he's just an amazing violinist, and they uh, did, I think they being, uh, I think it was the Washington Post that, that put him in a New York City subway, right? They put this man, just put him in normal clothes to play for the crowds that were passing by, and the question they were asking uh, in putting him in this situation was, is beauty something we are inclined to recognize on our own? And if you know this, you know that the, the, the busyness of the subway just rolled right by this man. I mean, this man is, is somebody that people pay $100 a seat to go and listen to him for. I mean, the, the violin he was playing, they, they said it's worth $3.5 million, the violin in the subway. And people just sped past him. There was no inclination. You know how much, you know, when, I don't know if you've ever been to New York, I haven't, but you, they open up their, their music case to collect kind of tips and, and money. Guess how much he made? Not $100 a seat or passerby, he made a grand whopping total of $32, this Josh Bell. Well, what, what I noticed was, was that we are not inclined to recognize beauty, and we are not inclined to be surprised by things that are familiar to us. Many of those passerbyers were familiar with musicians being in their subway and, and just kind of playing, and they just kind of went through the motions. I wonder if that's something that the disciples had done, had overlooked something beautiful, and I wonder if that's something that you continue to do in your own life. You see, the disciples at this point had known that Jesus was going to rise from the dead because he had told them. He had told them repeatedly, I'm going to die and I'm going to raise to life again. Yet the disciples here, the theme of this passage is one of unbelief. They could not believe it, even though they knew it was coming. And so even in Mark's gospel, which is a really fast gospel, he doesn't mention all the details. He even mentions three times that Jesus has told his disciples, this is going to happen. And so for them, the surprise factor becomes a reality here in this. I, I want to pull out just a few things that would have been shocking in that culture and should be shocking to us. The first is the witnesses that came to find him, right? All of the gospel accounts, uh, they have some varying dif differentiations and kind of what all happened. That doesn't mean nothing happened, but there's some different perspectives on it. But all of them acknowledge that women were the first ones to go and acknowledge and witness to this account. Now, if you know anything about this culture, you know women were marginalized, right? They were not given great weight, particularly in political or theological matters. They were, they were marginalized. They, they really were. And right, right or wrong as that is, it was the reality. And so the fact that women are the first ones recorded to see the risen Jesus is astonishing. Like if they were making this event up, that would have been the last thing they would have done, would to say our witnesses are these women. But nonetheless, they are. The second thing that's so surprising is the stone itself. I, I love Mark's little comment there. Uh, if you look in verse 4, at the end of verse 4, you know, this was the women's concern as they were approaching the tomb. Who's going to move the big stone? And as they approached the tomb, the, the stone was already moved, and Mark's little comment there is, 
it was very large, right? I mean, that's like the greatest underestimation ever. This was not a man-movable thing. Now, if you know kind of the prior events that led up to this, the reason the stone was put there was to seal and to make sure nobody was going to mess with Jesus. There had been speculation and rumor that maybe his followers were going to go in and take his body and, and claim that he rose from the dead and make this big scene out of it. And so Pilate ordered that the stone, which is immovable, seal this tomb and then that uh, uh, Roman centurions would guard it. Now, again, these are the professionals that did this for a living. And so here these women show up and the stone is already moved. And it's shocking, not only because it's not a man, a plausible thing, but it's because the way the text describes it, particularly in the other gospel accounts, is that God is the one that moved it for them through the angel. And so the, the angel is the representative of God here, and it's showing that God was the one that was moving this in order to show that he was the one working for it all. You see, hope is discovered for us when surprise is renewed. Hope is discovered when surprise is renewed in our lives. I don't know about you, but I often catch myself living life going through the motions, right? We go to work, you know, typically most of us five days a week. We drive the same route to work. We complain about the same traffic. We typically eat the same food every week. We're kind of getting those ruts and those routines of life, and we get stuck, right? We live in those ruts and routines, and we, we die there. There is no hope in those what Easter is, is the hope of future coming to us now. What Easter is, is, is Jesus, the Son of God, showing us not only what awaits us, but what is ours now. And so he's trying to, you know, the gospel account is continually calling us to be surprised by the work that God has done. That we would not grow tired and weary of hearing the same story because the reality is God's kingdom has come and Jesus is the approval factor of that. He's conquered death. Hope is surprisingly surprising. The second thing I want us to see is that hope is unbelievably believable. Uh, my wife, uh, unfortunately, is uh, at the brunt of most of my illustrations, so sorry about that, Heather. But uh, my wife likes this show called The Fixer Upper. Uh, if you're familiar with, uh, I think it's on the, the HGTV channel, and it's one of those thousands of shows where they will remodel a home, right? And, and in this particular one, I think, there, there's a couple of them, I always get them confused, but I think they usually kind of buy some lower-end homes, and they're a little, little questionable at the beginning, and then they revamp them in these remarkable ways, right? You, you totally want to move or redo your own home when you're done with the show. Well, well they do this in, a, in such a way that it, it seems too good to be true, right? Like, when I watch this show, like, I am the skeptic of all skeptics. I watch the show and I say, I don't know if they really did that or, you know, may maybe that's a camera angle that made it look that good. Um, but Heather assures me, this is real life. Uh, they live in Waco. They're, apparently, it's the sweetest couple ever. Apparently, they, they love Jesus too. But, but nonetheless, they, they do these works of restoration that are seemingly unbelievable. It's like it's too good to be true. Um, unbelief is the threat of this, this passage, Mark's gospel, is, is unbelief. Where were the men that were following Jesus while the women went to the tomb? Well, they were hiding. They were cowards. They were fearful. They were unbelieving. And so here, these women have to go to these men and tell them the unbelievable news that Jesus has risen. You see, here's how Christianity 
always works. It always works where it's a secondhand encounter. Somebody has to tell you about the good news about Jesus. And that, that's what was happening here. These women were going and, and communicating what had happened and what that meant, and they were astonished by it. But they were met with unbelief. They were met with cynicism. They were met with doubt. They were met with skepticism. I wonder if we are not compelled in the same way to do the same thing. You see, here's, here's my main point here is hope is discovered when unbelief becomes disbelief. You see, unbelief is that of cynicism and doubt and skepticism and cold indifference as though this has no meaning or bearing on our life. And disbelief is one of awe and wonder and, and amazement and astonishment. And actually, I think that's what this is compelling us to do. It doesn't tell us the full story here. We, we know the implications on the followers later, but, but it's moving us from cold indifference towards utter disbelief. One of my favorite books, that it's a, it's a depiction of the Christian story of grace, is the Chronicles of Narnia. In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, um, if, you haven't, if you're not familiar with that, it's basically there is this queen of Narnia who has made everything winter. Right? It's always winter and never Christmas. And so it's this, this cold, dark, cynical, doubtful place. And when Aslan, the king, the lion, shows up on the scene, it begins to describe what happens to Narnia. And what happens to Narnia is it begins to thaw out. The ice begins to melt. You see, Christianity is actually the same story. And I wonder if you've ever heard that story in a way that it sounds utterly too good to be true. That you can actually walk away from the Christian message and say, that sounds too good to be true. Give me two minutes to share that story with you. There was a God who existed before all time. He made everything out of nothing. He's the majestic king and ruler over all of creation. He made us out of dirt. He blew life into us. In the Garden of Eden, which was made for us to dwell with that God, we utterly rebelled against him. We said, God, we don't need you. God, in his holy majesty, kicked us out of the garden. And ever since, we've been living in prison to our own selfishness and enslaved to our own sin. From the beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3, God has been pursuing people like that so that we might come back with him. And so what we see in the coming of Jesus is the King of Kings coming and living like us. He takes on flesh. He understands the temptations that you understand. He was hungry. He was weak. He was sorrowful, sad, yet he never sinned. And so being the perfect man, the God man, he should have been utterly raised with God in the presence of God forever. But instead of leaving us to ourselves, what does he do? He pursues us even to death. And so in the death of Christ, we see Jesus being punished for rebellious prisoners like you and like me. And if that were not good enough, he not only shows that he was willing to lay himself down to set us free, but he conquers our death, our sin, and the enemy himself, the great snake from the garden, Satan, by conquering the tomb. And so here on Easter, what's happening is prisoners are set free. You see, three days or earlier in the week, what had happened was there was a uh, Jesus was being on trial. And there was the, the question to the crowd was asked, who should we release, Jesus or Barabbas? Jesus, the innocent one, or Barabbas, a convicted felon? And the crowd cried out, give us Barabbas. And so Barabbas was set free as a prisoner. 
And here, Jesus willingly paid the punishment for Barabbases like you and like me. And so the reason that Christianity is such a good message is because we are given pardon. We're given the free pass of freedom to live life like it was always intended, life in the garden. And so that life doesn't just begin when we pass here into heaven. It's kind of that that pie-in-the-sky Christianity, right? When I die, I'll be all right with God and he'll accept me. It actually begins now. And so what Jesus is doing on Easter is he is putting the stamp on your life paid in full. There is nothing more required from us as Christians. And what greater response is there than to walk in fellowship with that God and with that king? Now, if you're here today, I I suspect we're all over the place. I believe there are many of us who have unbelief and hidden doubts and cynicism in our hearts. But if if I know because the Bible tells us about ourselves, you want that story to be true. Though you may doubt it, you want it to be true. You see, whether you're a Christian or not here today, the reality of Narnia is here. Easter is thawing our hearts There is ice on all of our hearts. It's frozen and it's hard. And that ice looks like all kinds of things. The ice looks like I love alcohol more than I love my family. The ice looks like I love looking at things that I shouldn't look at than gazing upon the beauty of the Lord. The ice looks like I love work and money and status and approval more than I love acceptance with God. God is thawing that ice through the good news about Jesus. Do you believe it today? The third thing that I want to draw out is the hope that hope is victoriously viral. Listen, if that message isn't compelling to you, consider how the message was spread. In verse 15, Jesus finally shows up. If you haven't noticed, throughout the whole narrative, he was always in second person. It was, he had, you know, he was missing, and then they had talked about him, and it was, he he wasn't really on the scene until verse 15 when he finally speaks. And he gives Christians this compelling command to go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the entire creation. It's what he tells us to do. Do you know that Christianity is the only message that exploded through ordinary people. I mean, I often think about the timing of God bringing Jesus into the world. It was like, you know, Jesus, if you would have waited 2,000 more years, we have Facebook now. You know, like, (laughs) we could have put videos up of this thing and told the world. I mean, it would have gone really quick. but, But God in his wisdom chose a time before the printing press, before Facebook and social media and all that is our life now, and he chose a time to come, the most timely matter to share the most effective thing that ever happened in the history of mankind. And the reason it exploded and expanded was because it changed the world. It turned it upside down. And think about the men that Jesus chose to be around him to impart this message to, to then go and explode to the world. He chose fishermen, right? These are pretty ordinary. Yes, they're savvy businessmen, but they're ordinary men. He chose tax collectors. I mean, the scandalous kind of people. I mean, he was surrounded by a throng of people that were, that were often deemed as the sinners. And that message has now reached people like you and like me. The compelling part of, about Christianity is, is that Jesus showed up in his resurrected for 40 days in all kinds of different ways. 
You can be the most scrutinous academic scholar who has studied the resurrection, and you will never deaden the reality of this text. Jesus showed up to individuals. He showed up to couples on the road. He showed up to groups. He showed up to a group of 500. It was inexplicably uh, evidentially verified Jesus is alive, and that's why you and I are here today, because it is a historical reality, not a fictional myth. And so if that's true, then this is true, that hope is discovered when good news is proclaimed. I want to speak to two different type of people in this room. There are those of you that are visiting today, and again, so glad you're here. Like, really, it's, it's great to see new faces. It's great to see families together in church and, and all that that entails. But I want you to know that in this church, we are committed to this good story, to the good news of grace-pursuing rebels, and everything we do is shaped by that. And so I want to invite you as a visitor to continue to explore that news and what it means for your life with us. Because we believe that this is the news that should define our narrative. This is our story and we're sticking to it. And so you can know that you will hear that here regularly. Join us on mission to do what Jesus compels us to do to go into the world and to share it. If you're here and you're a regular or you've been attending, we haven't been very long in existence, so your attendance record's probably pretty decent at this point. But if you're here, would you commit to this good news with us, even today? Maybe today would be that pivotal point in your life where you simply stop taking this as a fictional myth, where it's just some Jesus is the nice guy and he wants me to be a better person because the reality is he wants so much more from you. And so I am compelled today as lead of uh, uh, an under-shepherd of Jesus that we would take this news seriously, that we would go into the world, go into our workplaces, go into our families, go into our neighborhoods, and we would share the story of grace with people that it might change the world like it's changed you and like it's changed me. I'm going to conclude with uh, just a, a quick reference. I saw a video. Uh, it was actually last night I saw the video. And um, it was a, a short video, and it was not a Christian-themed video. So let me just put that on the surface. And it was of this woman. Her, her name was Gina, and she has this rare genetic disorder. It has affected all of her body. Um, the light and noise affect her, so she is in utter imprisonment. She's in her, in her, in her room um, and, and just utterly imprisoned. She has no voice and the video is actually to compel people towards uh, compassionate uh, euthanasia or voluntary euthanasia. And my, my point is not to comment on that or, or to go there today. But there was this statement that she made, um, the, the way she talks is through a keyboard, right? So she, she, she keys in. So this interviewer that's interviewing her during this video asks her, do you believe in God? And I mean, it's just a just a compelling video. It's very powerful. And she's in the darkness, and she writes, uh, or, or somebody writes for her because she can't see her write, but she writes, which means she typed in big letters, agnostic. Agnostic. And if you don't know what that term means, it means I don't know. It's just kind of this, this in-between an atheist and a, and, and a Christian, this agnosticism. And she writes that. But, but after that question, and this is kind of where it got me, she wrote... Uh, somebody said, what, what do you think about voluntary euthanasia? And she said, I think that if God were compassionate, he would want humans to have a silent and humble death. 
And so he, she basically said, if God's compassionate, then he would, he would let me go. And again, not to comment on, on that, but, but the reality of Easter is that even in the darkest of situations, the darkest scenario, which, which honestly none of us are facing the darkness, the physical darkness that this woman's facing, but whatever the darkness is, Christ's compelling light overcomes that. And so it's not this cliche answer, you know, I, I don't think that that's the right way to approach darkness like this, but, but why is Easter so significant? Well, because Christ conquered darkness. He conquered the darkness of death and sin, and now death is working itself backwards. And so for you and for me, living in Christ now means death is working itself backwards, regardless of the darkness that's surrounding us. Everything sad around us is coming untrue. The ice on the inside of us is thawing. May that be true of you today. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, a familiar story to us, but Lord, I pray that it would be more than a story. I pray that we would look at the risen Christ and that we would be compelled to believe that perhaps if there's some here today that, that came into this place out of mere obligation or, or duty or pleasing parents or wives or grandparents. I'm grateful they're here. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would work in hearts so that we would see Jesus as beautiful and believable. And Lord, for those of us who do live and, and die by this, Lord, I pray that, that we would uh, be compelled to have our lives and our reality now shaped by it, Lord. Would you change us for your own glory? And we pray these things in, in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you.